Today we are, uh, we've come to a point in Joshua where I'm not going to be reading like I normally do the passage because I'm just going to pick out a few verses here and there throughout the passage. Um, because we've come to a point where we're going to, uh, we have lists of battles that are fought, kings that are defeated, and then lists of, of divisions of the property, which really take up half the book of Joshua. Just the d distribution of the land. This tribe by lot gets this area and it goes from this place to that place to that place and we don't even really know where those places were anymore most of them anyway so it would uh, yeah every word of God is is inspired um, but what we learn we're learning from this though is uh, is something I'll explain as we go through the, the sermon today so uh, the sermon will be about uh, Joshua 10 28 through 13 verse 1 but uh, I'll only be reading a few of those verses in the sermon. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the pictures you paint throughout the Old Testament, the reminders of what you've, you've done for people in the past, how you fulfilled your promises, how you're faithful in the past, and what it pictures for us today. Thank you, Lord, that you said in your word that all these things happened to them for examples for us upon whom the ends of the age have come. So help us learn from it and help us to take those lessons to heart. Be with us now. We ask the Holy Spirit to, to move on our hearts those things that you want to communicate to us, the way you want to change the way that we think and see things because of your word. We invite you to do that work in us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, at this point in the book, as I said, we're, we have come to this long list of battles and the boundaries for the different tribes, so we're not going to read over everything. Um, I'm going to hit some of the highlights and emphasize this overarching principle, which is that God is faithful to keep his promises. But we need to cooperate with him to receive the fullness of the blessings that he wants to give us, okay? Um, God's promises are certain, but if we're going to experience the fullness of those promises, we need to cooperate with him. We can, we can cut ourselves short from all that God wants to do in our lives by just not cooperating, by doing our own thing. But if we want all that God has for us, we need to cooperate. When we don't, we end up suffering the consequences of our lack of submission to Jesus. The campaign to defeat those cities in the Negev, which is that southern part of Israel, in chapter uh, 10, verses 29 to 43, uh, that was the southern kingdoms that came up against Israel. The five kings got together and fought against Israel. And then Joshua had to go and, and conquer each walled city one by one, which is listed in those verses. It probably took months, even though we just have like a, a few paragraphs on it. A brief summary. So town after town fell to Israel's forces, and each one was devoted to destruction. And Israel was successful because, in verse 42, it declares, because the Lord fought for Israel. The justice of God is something that our fallen nature doesn't like to consider. 
In fact, I'd written this, I always write the sermon the week before, a week, uh, so Friday a week ago, I wrote this sermon, and it just happened that on Friday night, this very topic came up about, does God, is God, can God condemn people to hell? Does God really judge people like that? Can God decide when a person or nation has come to a place where they'll never return from rebelling against all that's good? Well, he does every day. He's numbered our days, and each of us continues to live because either we haven't grown so hardened or we're still growing in grace to prepare us for eternity with him, one or the other. We can, cannot say when it's the right time for a person to die, but God can because he sees the heart of each person. And scripture tells us he's numbered our days. He's determined the days of our lives, how long we will live. Perhaps God spares people by taking them before they make wrong decisions. And we have to just leave that to God and trust that he knows each of our hearts better than we even know our own heart. You know, when, when someone passes, we always think it's too soon. But God knows their potential future. God knows everything about their past, everything that's in their heart and mind. And he knows the perfect time. But there will come a day when our world, like that of the Amorites, iniquity comes to the full. In other words, it reaches God's limit, and he's had enough. There will be a day when the army of heaven does to the whole world what Joshua did to the Negev. And thankfully, there will be an end to evil and an end to rebellion against God. But that will only come after those who survive those Days live under the perfect reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years and then are still willing to be deceived for the last time to follow Lucifer in an attack on God. And you think, how could anybody, how could anybody be so deceived that they would attack God? Well, how could Pharaoh drive his chariot between two walls of water in the Red Sea? It's insane. But rebellion against God really is a form of insanity. We'd like to think, as many religions and cults do, that someday everybody's going to love God. Everybody's going to receive Jesus. And that's what God truly desires. But the prophets, including Jesus, say that's just not going to happen. They predict a final battle when the entire world will unite to fight against the return of Christ. The vast majority of the world will have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist who promises peace and prosperity, but also demands that the world worship him. He'll make war on those who worship Jesus and try to annihilate them, Revelations 13 tells us. The heart of man is desperately evil, and the Antichrist will certainly stroke all the egos of man to come and join him in his campaign. He'll present himself as the answer to all our problems, our superhero. A false prophet will cause people to worship the Antichrist and will even show miraculous signs, the scripture says. But people will not be deceived because he's so clever, but rather because he will tell them what they want to hear. 
He will claim that no repentance is needed, that nothing will be called sinful, except, of course, to oppose him. He will tell the world they should do as they wish and forget all those taboos of ancient religion that restrict you. Jesus said it would be like the days of Noah. At that time, the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. He compared those days to the days of Lot. The men of that city were so lustful that even when they were struck with blindness, they were still groping around trying to get a hold of the angels to commit vile acts with them. The destruction by flood and the brimstone from heaven upon Sodom, as well as this destruction in Canaan of the forces that came against Israel, foreshadow the coming judgment of the entire world. We all wish everyone would see the destructiveness of trying to rebel and be our own God, but we can't make people see what they refuse to see. Jesus came to set captives free, but many prefer the enslavement to their own passions. We can be sure God will give us every chance to turn from lies to the truth, from darkness to light, but some will never accept any Lord but self. Some people even proudly declare that if God would condemn people to hell, then they don't want him as their God. Just as Rahab and Gibeon chose to allow themselves to ally themselves with the God of Israel, so we too, so everyone has that choice. Every city in Canaan had that choice. Even after hearing all the mighty things that God had done for Israel, they chose to fight against Israel's God. And so will it be at the end of the age. Thank God that we have bowed our knee to the king who loves us and gave himself for us, amen? His grace helped us open our eyes. And by his grace, we chose him. And now we're growing increasingly into his likeness. This section of Joshua we're, we're in right now was about all these physical battles that took place. But it, had, it has deep spiritual roots. This was the forces of darkness against the forces of light. God's command through Moses was to tear down their places of worship and their idols. God knew Israel wouldn't finish the job, and so he added to that command that they not intermarry with those that remain in the land and, or, and not worship their gods, and that if they disobeyed, Israel would become idolatrous and deserve the same fate that those of those they were attacking. And at different stages in the nation's history, many did just that. And the nation eventually did go into captivity, just like Moses predicted. You can fight against God, or you can surrender to his goodness and experience his grace. It's a matter of where your allegiance lies in this spiritual battle over the souls of mankind that's raging all around us every day. Because our old nature never truly leaves us while we're in this life, we will often try to to kind of straddle the fence and have a little of both worlds. We're great at justifying or reasoning things to be other than what scripture declares them to be. We choose beliefs 
that let us do as we please apart from God. And then we add some worship to it, you know, a little Bible reading and go to a Bible study now and then and maybe do a little prayer time. That's just like Israel in their later years when they would come to the temple and offer their leftovers, their lamb that was blind or crippled to God, something that God had forbidden them to do. They'll make offerings to other gods right in the side of the temple in the future. But God is described as a jealous God. He's not jealous like mankind for selfish reasons, but instead he's jealous for our good and for the truth. When we blend that old and other, other religions with what Jesus has, has done for us, he will discipline us like he did Israel. When the Southern Coalition was defeated, then the kings of the North got together to try to resist Israel. That begins in chapter 11. And so God again encouraged Joshua in chapter 11, verses six through eight. He says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Do not be afraid. Repeated over and over in scripture. This huge coalition of, of forces from the north had superior weaponry. They had chariots and horses. They probably even had the early iron instruments, which Israel didn't have. And yet, God tells them, don't be afraid. It would be, I guess it would kind of be like if Mexico attached, attacked the U.S. And God was with Mexico and told Mexico, don't be afraid. <laughs> you know, they have heat-seeking missiles and laser-guided missiles, but it's okay. I am with you. That's what Joshua was facing. But Joshua had faith in God, and God and one are a majority against any force. The Lord gave the victory, and he will give us the victory in the spiritual battles we fight as well. Thank the Lord. When the Antichrist in the future is, is killing Christians, we need not fear. That's because our Joshua, Jesus, will make us victorious in the end. Not that we overcome him, he'll do that, but we'll be victorious in that Jesus will reign. Jesus commanded us not to fear those who kill the body, but have no more than they, that they can do. But instead, he said we should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we fear anything, it should be fearing our own weaknesses that will turn us against Jesus by compromising the truth and then be judged for our rebellion. But we have a promise that Jesus will finish the work that he started in us. Hallelujah. We know he's a good shepherd and he doesn't lose his sheep. But make every effort not to wander off and be in need of his discipline. I asked in previous sermons why the people of the land would fight a force whose God could, could part the waters of the Jordan and, and knock the walls of an enemy flat. 
Why would they resist when hailstones from heaven killed more of Israel's enemies than their swords did? And the answer is in verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. You see, God hardened their hearts just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. The account of Pharaoh's resistance against God gives us a clue to what was happening in Canaan. First, Pharaoh hardened his own heart again and again and again and again. And then, when he'd passed that point of no return, then God hardened his heart. Man can yield without surrendering. And in essence, that's what Pharaoh did. He let the people go, but then he went after them with his army. If the nations, other than the Gibeonites, had surrendered and become slaves, the Israelites would soon be worshiping their idols. So God hardened the enemy's hearts because he knew that in the long run they would not change. And I believe he does the same today. I witnessed these debates, you know, between liberal humanists and, and evangelical believers, and that they can beat the humanist at every, every discussion, and yet the humanist can walk away saying he won. When a person's beyond the point of no return and determined to rebel, God will harden their heart to their own destruction. And God's righteous in doing so. Verse 23 in chapter 11, So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Because scripture tells us that all these things happened to them for examples, for us, we need to consider the spiritual application. We also have the promises of God a divine inheritance. Just like they were inheriting the land, we have those, prom those spiritual promises of divine inheritance. And we have a great enemy who'd like to keep us from taking the land. He, like the Canaanites, is under the wrath of God, devoted to destruction. And like them, his heart is hardened to the point of no return. Satan's never going to go, man, I just keep getting defeated every way I go. I keep losing. God stops me everywhere. I should give in. It's never going to happen. He knows he will lose, for he has seen the mighty hand of God, and yet he attacks us again and again with his legions. However, we've been promised to be victorious, for the same power that worked for Israel is working for us. The Lord will give us the victory. And that doesn't mean we won't have battles or we won't suffer, but, but we will be victorious in the end. Considering the age of Caleb, we can estimate that those battles in the north took about seven years. Unlike the battle with the southern kings, God didn't send hail to assist in the battle. It was up to the men of Israel with their swords, of course, anointed by God. We use the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight our battles, just as our commander Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. We, too, 
are told not to fear, for Jesus, our Joshua, has already given the enemy into our hands, for greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Luke chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. That's kind of like a metaphor for evil. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Hallelujah. You know, somebody said some, one time, a brother in the Middle East was threatened, you know, and they said, we'll kill you if you don't re, re, uh, renounce Jesus and claim Allah as your Messiah. And he said, go ahead. Then I'll just be with him. And it was like, you're not afraid to die? No. And it was like, oh, what? A, okay, how can we threaten this guy? When you're not afraid to die, when you know where you're going, you can be fearless. We show no mercy to the influence of the world, to our old nature and to the devil. Those influence should be given no quarter in our lives. If we cling to the things devoted to destruction, then like Achan, we put ourselves under their curse. But if we fight on until our hearts are cleared of all the idolatrous influences, we too will have rest from our war. Our Joshua, Jesus, will give us our inheritance, heavenly homes we did not build, but that he has prepared for us. Remember, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In chapter 12, he gives us a list of all the lands the Israelites conquered on both sides of the Jordan River. Joshua did all that the Lord commanded Moses He's a foreshadow of Jesus who did all that the Father commanded him. However, some of the tribes didn't finish the work assigned to them. And God predicted this through Moses and warned them not to intermarry or worship their idols. We can have our own victories. Our battle is not seven years, but since seven represents completeness, we're to see it as our whole life. The victories we rack up over our old nature and helping others be victorious um, maybe could be journaled, you know? Do, do any of you keep a journal? I keep a journal, and I don't write in it every day, but I write in it when God does something awesome. Uh, I had a dream a couple nights ago. It was awesome. God was speaking to me. I had to write that down. Well, what if we did like it is in this chapter here, and we wrote down the victories that God has given us on, in different situations. Like, like, for example, like, okay, July 1st, 2019, victory over the temptation to lust when the king of sexual fantasy was put to death at Slide Rock State Park. Or, or 12-12-20, victory over greed when I obeyed the spirit and gave money to this guy, John, to help him with his rent. There, the king of greed was executed in Cottonwood. Or March 1st, 2021, victory over selfishness about my time. When I gave the day to help Jim work on his house, there I slew the king of my free time. You get the idea? 
through verse 6, we have this list of every victory on the east side of the Jordan while Moses was still living. And then from verse 7 to the end of the chapter, the list of the kings that Joshua conquered are covered. And that concludes the first half of the book of Joshua. Chapters 13 to 21 is the second half, the distribution of the land to the tribes. Chapter 13 focuses on the land given to the half the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, and Reuben. The chapter begins with the need to divide the land before Joshua dies um, because all the people really respected the anointing on Joshua. There wasn't a great leader who followed Joshua, so the tribes could have ended up fighting over the land if it wasn't divided while Joshua was still living. We're told that the entire land had not yet been conquered. The people that were left in the land, the Philistines and others, are going to cause most of the problems for Israel's future. One group, the Philistines, who live along the coast, um, uh, had moved there from Crete originally and had pushed out another people group, the Avavim, and they're going to be the major trouble for Israel. When we come to Christ, we have some mighty victories that start our new life in Christ. We realized our need for forgiveness. We accepted that we have a fallen nature and we surrender our lives to follow our captain. We often begin by giving up some obvious things that held us captive. It may take some time, but with God's help, we prevail. But then we read the scripture that there's more land to conquer. In chapter 13, Verse 1, it says, this is the land that yet remains. In other words, there is still area to take. And we find that we've been given inheritance, just like the Israelites, and that we have to go out and take it, knowing that God goes before us. They had the description of their land, kind of like a title deed, and we'd have the description of the land for us described in the promises of the New Testament. It's a covenant that first of all guarantees eternal life. It doesn't just mean living forever, it means being in a right relationship with God and communing with him forever. That's the land in general, but we each have our specific part, our specific area assigned to us. The land that remains to be taken is our calling and our gifts within our life or land. But let's first look at claiming the land of a right relationship and communion with God because this is where it all begins. Remember the first thing they did when they got into the promised land was to circumcise the males. All who hadn't been circumcised in the desert entered into that covenant of circumcision. And it pictures a heart that's tendered towards God, a heart that readily receives the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This was the, an outer sign of their covenant, just like baptism is today. We will have, actually, we're going to have some creek baptisms on Easter, after the Easter service. So please pray that the weather is warm. <laughs> I'd appreciate it. <laughs> baptism declares we've joined ourselves with those who follow Jesus. We're in a covenant relationship with Jesus. And it makes us vulnerable, just like it made them vulnerable. An out, outward de declaration that we've died with Christ and we've been raised with him means others are going to watch us 
to see if we live it. And they're going to point it out to us when we don't. Didn't you get baptized the other day? Why would you say, talk like that, right? They may even mock us, unfriend us. Anybody experience that? And some will expel us. In the early church, it sometimes even meant imprisonment or execution. So the first step is this new identity. And it should be obvious to others that we are following Christ as he becomes our first love. In some regions of the world today, uh, Christians still take on a new name when they're converted. And then there's the first big conquest. Jericho seems impenetrable, as some of our besetting sins are. The habitual ones were convicted to leave behind. And the battle seems insurmountable, but Jesus brings us to victory. We shout the victory and we watch the walls fall flat. And then it's up to us to destroy any remnant that would connect us to that vanquished sin. We dare not hide any small piece of it in our hearts or it'll destroy us. And then in this honeymoon period where we feel so victorious and feel Christ so powerfully with us, we face this little problem like the town of I a problem we don't think is so big, and we go about trying to put it away ourselves and find we are badly defeated. We forget to look to the Lord, to remember that it's all him that does it. It's by his power. We begin learning the lesson that we need to pray and seek God's direction from the Bible and from the Spirit. And the lesson is reinforced when we found that we made a big compromise that ends up being with us for the rest of our lives like they did with the Gibeonites. There are other major areas ahead that we can see in the battles with those northern kings. These can be major areas of our life like marriage or our occupation. How do we follow Christ in those areas when so many are defeated? Just like they did with Jericho and I we get God's battle plans. But now we've come to taking our inheritance in the land, or we could say our place in the body of Christ. And that's what the last half of the book deals with. The lot is cast into the lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us Jesus is the one who determines each person's gift, and he distributes those gifts as he wills. He assigns your place, your gifts, and your calling. And some of these areas that have yet to be taken still have giants to conquer. What church is he leading me to be part of? What's my part in it? What classes or groups do I attend? How can I help make the church all that God wants it to be? Where's the need? And how do I reach out to others who need to know Jesus' love and forgiveness? And as we begin to search our hearts and observe what God puts before us with the Spirit's guidance, we start to discern our land that has yet to be taken. That doesn't mean on Sunday only, but every day, wherever we happen to be. The final claiming of the land allotted to us is being a vital member of the body of Christ, walking in the Spirit and the calling of God on our lives. That's when we find that even in all the activity, there's rest for our souls. You know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're doing what God created us to do. 
We're enjoying fellowship with God and our brothers and sisters. We're laying up treasures in heaven, teaching disciples how to follow Jesus and enjoying doing it. It is work, but it's Christ-empowered work. The outcome of our faith will be seen in our lives and in the lives of those we influence. We're as close to home as you can experience in this life. Dear brother and sister in Christ, how much of your promised land has yet to be taken? Have you sit down and done an assessment or prayed and asked the Lord to, to show you, do you have something more for me, Lord? Do you have some area that you want me to, to, to step into to be an influence for the kingdom of God? What's my calling? Because Jericho and I have been conquered, there are still battles to fight. Have you found your place of service in the body? Are you mar marching forward in faith at our captain's command? Letting him lead. That's what this section of Joshua, I think, is presenting to us. There's land yet that remains. Let's not be like the Israelites and leave some of it unconquered. Amen. Let's go all the way and give God our all. Amen. He deserves nothing less. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the lesson in this section of Joshua that there remains land yet to be taken. I pray, Lord, that each one that's here today would take time with you to, to recognize the land that's yet to be conquered in their own lives. All for your glory and because we love you, not because we have to or because it has anything to do with our salvation, but because you want to bless us with it. You want us to experience all that you have for us, all that you've promised to give us. So Lord, guide us into our gifts and calling. Guide us into our individual places of ministry and influence. And help us, Lord, to walk ever closer to you. Eyes always beholding you that we might be changed from glory to glory as we serve and love you. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for our time together this morning, Lord. I pray you bless each one that's here today as they go throughout their week. And as we do go out through, through the week, help us to be meditating on this. What do you have for me, Lord? Where are you directing me? How do you want to work through me? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.